guys, let's move on to, um, in my mind, was when the group peaked, which was with the uh, Gap Band 4. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's one of the finest R&B funk albums of the entire decade. Um, hit number one. And uh, it was just so rock solid from the opening early in the morning to the closing Talking Back, which is one of my favorites. Um, and uh, early in the morning was the number one smash. Um, but in between, there was also uh, the classic You Dropped a Bomb on Me, the mid-tempo uh, Outstanding, Radio Popular Ballad, Stay With Me. You know, back then, these were actually very active years for me as a uh, disc jockey at clubs and also doing mobile gigs. And, I mean, that record played such a uh, prominent role in my DJ life, you know, especially like the extended version of You Dropped a Bomb on Me. And, uh, you know, the crowds could not get enough of those records. So what was it like creating that album specifically? And, um, you know, how do you feel about the, the response that you saw to it? Uh, I'll start with uh, Raymond first. Well, you know, I remember on that particular album, Charlie and Ronnie would always tell us, but just from my experience with, with that record and my contribution to that album, Charlie would always tell us, if you guys want to make money after we come off this road, you got to write some songs on the album. You better write. You better go and write. So I took that myself. I took that in my mind. I was like, you know what? I need to write something to put it on this record. And 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 by the grace of God, I ended up coming up with outstanding. Even though I was playing these same chords all through high school, that was kind of the first song I ever wrote. As a matter of fact, it is the first song I ever wrote. And Charlie said, "If y'all want to make some money, write some songs in this album." So I remember distinctly going and buying uh, a used Fender Rose for 150 bucks. That's all I had in my account, and I took that piano home. And I sat down at the piano, and for some grace of God, the song came to me. Words, music, lyrics came to me. Melody, it all came to me right then. And I recorded it on a little four-track recorder, two-track recorder, whatever. And I took the cassette down to the studio. And I said, hey, Charlie, you said, man, if anybody want to write, here goes a song. And I wrote this song. Listen to this song right here. Uh, that I wrote. And Charlie immediately connected with it. He said, wait a minute, I like that. And uh, he said, go out there and, and, and put it down. So I went out there and I put the drums and the piano and the bass part, sang the, the, the vocal and did everything on the track. I had no idea in my mind that that song was going to be like I was just trying to get a song on the record. Charlie, and it was just what it was. And then, you know, I left the studio or whatever and came back next day. And like Gussie said, he has such a magical voice. Yeah. Took what I did and yeah. made my standing what it was. Yeah. And he did that with everything. I mean, with yearning, you know, with, with whatever. Charlie's voice is a thing that separated that, that this, that's that the distinctive aspect vocally was that Charlie's voice was on it. And it's not to say that somebody else couldn't have sung it, but you, you, when you hear that voice, you recognize, oh, that's Charlie Wilson. And of course, you know, during that time, it's impossible to sing and say you weren't influenced by Stevie Wonder. Uh, it's impossible if you're a band to say you weren't influenced by Earth, Wind, and Fire. 
those are my two primary influences was Stevie Wonder for writing, singing, production, Earth, Wind & Fire for being in a band, and, and, and of course Stevie for singing as well, and then being a part of the Gap Band. And so, yeah, I mean, Gap 4, you know, and I, I'm gonna tell the story to not change, shift the tone. The, there are two, two songs on that album that I had something to do with. Because during Gap 4, I had backed away from the band because on Gap 3, I had three songs. And that was the Gap Band's first platinum album, Gap Band 3. And I had three songs on that album, Yearning For Your Love, Nothing Comes to Sleepers, and Ronnie and I co-wrote uh, Yearning and what's the other song? The Way. Right? The Way. Yeah, now a year later, of course, you know, you write songs, you perform as a musician, you expect to get paid at some point. And so that had not happened. And so I kind of backed away. I was kind of feuding with the company at the time, engaged a lawyer. And so Gap 4 was one of those records that just, had, like you say, it really peaked. You know, to me, arguably, the biggest song that the Gap Band has ever had in popularity is outstanding to me. You know, uh, now, of course, with some uh, some people will say it's dropped a bomb. Some people say early in the morning, but uh, because they all were number one songs. I mean, early in the morning went to number one. I think dropped a bomb number two. But Outstanding also went to number one as well. Uh, so I'm saying that was a, that was an album where I went in the studio with Ronnie a couple of nights. We just playing around the studio, you know, getting high, <laughs> going to the studio. Stay With Me was one of the songs that I worked on. I actually laid the original drums on Stay With Me one drum at a time. Because even though I could have played drums, Ronnie was quirky, he said, why don't you just do it one drum at a time? And that's basically what, what I did. Now, they probably came back and did some other production stuff because I wasn't around. But the little synthesizer parts, I actually played on it and did, without knowing that song would actually be on the album. So, Because I was kind of like, yeah, I'm feuding with the company now. I'm not going to be a part of that. Man. I want my money. I ain't doing nothing else. Uh, but the album, in, you know, in spite of me feuding, the album did great. It had a great, you know, arguably the biggest album that The Gap has ever had. And so uh, it's an interesting album. Calhoun, like you said, that, that, that song, Outstanding, it, it's still, you know, you start it now and people start moving. It just it has that kind of energy to it, man. And so that's a great album, awesome album. Uh, again, just like on Gap 3, Gap 4 kind of shows that the diversity of the band's ability to do uh, uh, different stuff. Cause Ronnie did a song called Seasons No Reason to Change. It's kind of kind of country pop. Seasons no reason change. With a little reggae vibe. I mean, you just get so many different things from this band. And Gap Forwards again, like you said, I believe you're right. That probably was our peak. Even though five and six had great songs on them, I, I think that probably you're right. That probably was the peak, the highest that the band got as far as recordings. Yeah, great album. Not, mm -hmm. not to shift gears on on back, uh, harping back on that record, but mm -hmm. I, I I had fallen out with Ronnie and Charlie and Robert doing that record, so I was actually out of the band for a year because at that time, you know, I mean, it's common knowledge that the band was heavy drug users and. Yeah, the whole thing was just a little, just kind of disorganized because of the, all of that kind of stuff. So I had gotten an offer to go work with Entume Lucas and to be a part of uh, Reggie. You know who Reggie Lucas is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, with Entume. 
Exactly. Reggie Lucas asked me to be join to join his group. We had a deal on Warner Brothers called Sunfire, and uh, he asked me to come over there. So I kind of like left the gap band and went over there to do my own record with these guys. You know, too many Lucas in there. And all along, Gap Band, that album that Gus was talking about, I was, was on that record. I had no idea it was going to be no hit record, no none yeah. of that. And ironically, from what I'm hearing is that the gap that outstanding was kind of a sleeper because mm-hmm. the brothers didn't want to play it on the road because they were because of, yeah the relationship yeah the relationship was so bad that they didn't want to play the song on the road but the radio and the audience made them play the record it was killing <laughs> the response they wouldn't let them leave the arena unless they played outstanding yeah. And radio forced it, and then that song went to number one in a matter of like no time. Yes, like boom, like that quick. Then I had my relationship with the two way Lucas and them got strained, and I ended up coming back over to the Gap Band's camp. Mm-hmm. Charlie and them let me back in the band because I had a hit record, so I ended up coming back in the band. But that's how that happened with that. Yeah, yeah. That's what I tell you. God is God is real, man. If you don't believe in Him, you better because. Yes. It's amazing how things happen. Things happen for a reason, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm leaving the band and going to do my thing, but I got a hit record over here and they don't like me. And then I fall out with them and come back over here and they let me back. And, you know, the rest is history, you know what I'm saying? So that's how my, my life went with that whole, that whole, when you asked about what I thought about that whole period. That, yeah. That was part of the period for me. Yeah. And I think also, you know, with that being a peak record, I think some of the friction, some of the disagreement, some of the, you know, the business dealings not being what, you know, fair in some ways, I think that started to manifest itself, not just with the band members, but also probably with the brothers at some level as well, you know. And so, you know, you see the success and these successful records, but then the other side of the business, you know, not really being, you know, guys not getting the fruit of their labels, you know, that start to manifest itself. So you start to get a little dissension here and there in the band. You know, I actually uh, got out of the band and, you know, signed with the record label as a staff writer and producer uh, and started to do that and then go back on the road with the band. I, matter of fact, I got in the band before Calhoun and some of these other guys, but I also got out the band. These guys traveled with the guy, man, what, how, how long Calhoun? Next 10, 15, 20 years almost. Yeah. Long time, but I, I I was in the band only three and a half years. My full stint was with the band. I got out of the band in '83, and so part of my fighting with 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 them about royalties ended up okay. What do you want to do? And I ended up signing an agreement with 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 the record label and dealing with some of those same challenges, you know, you know, but young and being and wanting opportunities. And 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 it's not to say that I didn't get paid at all. Uh, but I'm saying there were some challenges, and I think after that season, that stuff started to show up a little bit more, which is where you see that being the peak in the band, not really going any higher in popularity because guys start to grow into adults and want their business straight, and you know, it became a little bit more contentious rather than just having fun because we're young and we get to do our dream. Now it's like, okay, I need my business straight, man. The guys were walking around with that on their shoulders. Hey, man, I need my money. You know, I'm gonna play, but I need my money. You know, so I think kind of now you see that start to happen in after gap four. <laughs> but you know, you know, going back to Oliver's situation, like he he kind of 
it, like I said, God works in mysterious ways. He became like the first staff writer over there for Total Experience when he left the band. Yeah. Uh, and ended up producing Switch, Kenny yeah. Ford. Uh, uh, what's the other guy? Uh, God rest his soul. What's his name? Me and Mrs. Jones. Billy Paul. I produced Billy Paul. You know, all these artists that Ron Lonnie had on his pulling in on his roster, Oliver was the, the was the producer on those records. So he went from being transitioning from being on the road with us to being a producer for the Total Experience, one of the top, one of the the, the main uh, uh, staff producers over there at the Total Experience label. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, it, was a, it was a fun time. It was a fun time, man. But then, like I said, with challenges too, though, man. Yeah, it sounds like a, a turbulent time. Really interesting to hear what was going on behind the scenes, you know. Um, and uh, like, you know, so often happens, you get these different <clears throat> business and um, sometimes substance abuse, you know, types of uh, dynamics going on once a band gets to a certain level and then it kind of, you know, interferes with that whole creative genius that got into that uh, area in the first place. And that's yeah. the tragedy of it all. Um, the Wilson brothers, how how are they, you know, personality-wise, how are they different? Uh, you know, can you talk about them a little bit in terms of, you know, what what they were like, how they differed from one another? My, my, my impression of them were that Charlie was always a good guy. He had a great big heart. He would, you know, he always had a big heart. He would always, you know, be willing to help people. You know what I'm saying? And uh, Ronnie was kind of the, uh, he had this big brother vibe about him. Yeah. You never could please his ass. You know what I'm saying? He was just always, you know, had this big brother vibe about you, about him. And Robert just had that free spirit about him. Robert had a free yeah. spirit. Robert just wanted to play music. Man. He didn't care about getting paid. None of that. He wanted to just play. Yeah. And it showed in his live performance. He was all over the place. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He was he was that free spirit. He wanted to be that Verdine White, as you would say, kind of like person of uh, the Gap Band. So that's my recognition of, of their personalities. Yeah. Uh, I don't from what I can remember. Yeah, mine was, you know, pretty similar. I think you hit it right, hit the nail on the head with, you know, how they were with us. Charlie. You know, to add to that, even though he was a giving guy, he, he also liked his private space. You know, he would separate himself away sometimes, not out of not wanting to be around people for, because he didn't like them, but out of this, he was just kind of a private guy. I mean, he would, we'd be rehearsing for hours, and Charlie would be upstairs, you know, doing whatever he was doing, and we'd be rehearsing and going through stuff. Then he'll come downstairs, and you could feel the shift in the atmosphere because now Charlie's going to take over and take us where he can go with only Charlie doing it. And so, you know, he, he was that leader on the stage in some ways that, you know, the buck stopped with him because he was the guy out front. And I think, Ronnie, I think you're right with organizing rehearsals and picking people for the band. I think Ronnie played, played a big role in that, that. That kind of big brother approach to, okay, let's, you know, I'm going to handle this. That, that I can handle the thing. And you're right, Robert, man, just a, just a guy that loved the music, man. He loved playing. People don't realize Robert. Robert had a great voice. Robert didn't just play bass. He could sing. He played an awesome blues guitar, dude. I heard Robert play some B.B. King and sing the blues. Dude was amazing. I mean, all three of these guys are amazingly gifted guys. 
in different ways. Uh, but yeah, personally, they, they were three distinctively different guys, you know, and, and uh, had their moments where they were eccentric and got on your nerves, but also the, the joy of music, it was evident in all three of their lives, definitely. They just love the music. Did, did the three of them get along fairly well, or did they have friction too? <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure that was friction because brothers, you know, brothers, you know, get into friction. But for the most part, I know there was a lot of love between them. I know they loved each other. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think they were as organized. The st business structure wasn't as organized as it probably could have been because of their, you know, raising Tulsa probably didn't have you know, a lot of the kind of uh, information about how to be a business, just the three of them, uh, probably led to some frustrations and, you know, maybe the name game, blaming Ronnie or, or you know, Ronnie, Ronnie blaming Charlie, Charlie blaming Ronnie. I, some of that may have existed, but I know they loved each other. But, I, you know, there probably was some times when there was friction because the business just not, didn't allow them the kind of freedom, you know, the way it was constructed. You know, it's almost like Papa Papalani issued out what he wanted to issue it out, as opposed to you getting your royalty statements, your direct deposits in your account, your money coming, your mail coming to your house, and you pick up a check and you do what you wanted with it. It was more of this issuing out and not really having the business structured in a way. And if, if it's like that, that's gonna lead to some conflicts. You gotta blame somebody. You know what I'm saying? So I'm I'm sure, even though I never saw them. You know, I went in the band as long as Raymond. Maybe they saw some other stuff. I never saw them go to blows with each other. I never saw them verbally abusing each other. But I'm sure there probably was some challenges. Raymond, you probably can speak on it more, more than me. Yeah, right. I mean, when I, you know, after all the left was that it, it, it started to become like a control issue. Mm -hmm. Charlie definitely wanted to take control, and his brothers wanted to take control too. So it would be that clash between who's the boss, me or Ronnie, or you know, Robin kind of was like whatever my brothers say. Yeah. But it started to me. And then at that point, I started to see where Charlie started to shift his mind about saying that he needed to be solo. Not that he didn't love his brothers no more. I think it was just started to come to the point where he felt like I could do this on my own. Yeah, he knew. He knew. Yeah. So um, let's continue on through the, uh, the album. So on Gap Band 5, uh, Raymond, were you back then, or you came back after that? Yeah, I came back after that. I was on all the records after that. Yeah. So you were on five, or you were not? I was, yeah. Okay, so five had a huge smash again in Party Train, and that was another one as a DJ. Man, uh, people couldn't get enough of it. What do you remember, uh, uh, if anything, that stood out about you know those sessions and and that you know, you know, you had come back, so things must have been a little bit different. What was it like for you? It was, it was, for me, it became more, uh, I, I got a little bit more respect from the brothers because I guess I had written outstanding. So they, they kind of trusted me more in the studio with whatever I contributed, whether it be playing drums, percussion, or even some of my other ideas musically in terms of songs, you know, but they didn't use, uh, I think the next song I had after outstanding, Lonnie said to me, I don't know if it was on that album, I, I, I lose track of what, albums I had songs on, but I know I wrote this song, uh, I Found My Baby, that was Lonnie's word, way of saying, hey, uh, we want you to give us another outstanding. So I basically went in, took the same chords and shifted around, changed the melody, 
did something to the words, blah, 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 and gave them that. And that became like a number four record or something, number eight for them. I found my baby. So they kind of, I could see that the shift changed in terms of them trusting me, my ability in terms of me as a writer, as just as, as well as a professional and a drummer. So, you know, so I contributed on that record in terms of those those three things. I don't know. I, I don't know if I found my baby was on that particular album. It looks like it was on the next one, six. Gap six, yeah. I yeah. can't give me name, name me some of the songs on that Gap album that five. Of, yeah, five. Because I can't remember. <laughs> uh, well, besides Party Train, it had Jam the Mother. Yeah. Um, Shake a leg. I'm ready. You're yeah. my everything. Yeah. Smile. Yeah. 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 So I played percussion more on those songs. I think I played the drums on I'm Ready. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read that's me playing the synthesizer part on that, man. I played on that album too. Yeah, that's your song, though, Gus. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, Gus wasn't even. Did you even work on that record? They just. I wasn't even in the. I wasn't in the band anymore, but I played on some of the tracks. Right. They just kind of going in the studio, not knowing they were going to actually be on the record. There were so many songs, you know, in the cans that Lonnie could pull from, and I think "Are You Ready" was one of those songs. Uh. Who wrote that? I think John Black wrote the song. John Black, right, right. Yeah, John Black and Ronnie Wilson wrote it, and then I put the little synth. I played on it. Yeah, I played drums. You know, I wasn't traveling with the band anymore. So yeah, Gap Five had some some stuff on it that I played on, but without being in the band, I was kind of like studio musician. Right. You know, so yeah, I mean, you know, so then I, Charlie started letting me sing background. I mean, I I became when I came back, it started. Yeah. Started, you know, he just started, you know, embracing me more, him himself personally, and then Ronnie did too. You know, they started just to trust my, you know, ability a little bit or whatever I could contribute. So that that's my experience from that record, yeah. Yeah. So maybe it was kind of good that you stepped away because it sounds like they appreciated you more. Well, yeah. I, can't, I will say that absolutely, especially yeah. when I had the money on the record stop because they wouldn't change my name back from Raymond Calhoun to from Raymond Cathound to Raymond Calhoun. But that's a whole story. You can bleep that out if you want. <laughs> Cat out. That's a nickname. That was a blatant, I'm going to steal this boy's money because he went over there with his two Lucas. And we mad about it. We're going to fuck his name up. Uh, and by the way, you know, that Gal 5 album, even though I wasn't in a band, I'm looking at the, the, the listings now. I have two songs on the album. I have the privilege of, I guess it's blowing my own horn, being the, I wrote, I wrote the only instrumental song that's ever been on the Gap Band in their repertoire. They only have one instrumental. It's called Where Are We Going? And I, it's, 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 it's incredible that I just went, again, went in the studio, recorded it. I mean, we were just tracking, you know, I, I, I don't know who all played on it, but we tracked it and it ended up being the introduction to the, uh, to the record. Huh? Sing that one so I remember what that one You know, the intro. Da, 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 da. Oh, we end up using that for the live album. Yeah, yeah for right. the live album. It was the yeah, introduction, right. And uh, people don't realize it, but that song, not the song, the performance, us as a band got nominated in the category of best instrumental that year with Billie Jean, Rocket, Love, Rocket by. Uh, uh, Herbie Hancock. What was the other song? Uh, your boy uh, that just passed last year. 
don't you, the producer Evelyn Champagne King. I can't think of his name. Uh, 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 um, Kashif. Kashif had a song in there, and then I think James Brown living living coming to America. But Herbie Hancock's song actually won. That that was the only song and performance that was ever nominated for a Grammy in the Gap Band's whole repertoire until Charlie, you know, these last couple of years. And so, I mean, that's that's kind of a distinction that I'm proud of. You know, I did a song. They only have one instrumental song in their whole repertoire that they actually recorded in the studio. And they've done some stuff, you know, live since then. But I thought that was a very, uh, I mean, that was kind of like a little feather in my cap. I just realized it's like like six months ago, I was looking through the, all of their songs. And I was like, wow, that's the only instrumental that we ever recorded as a band. That's that's the kind of trivia nuggets you can only get on Truth and Rhythm. That's um, right. Talking to uh, members of the uh, Gap Band, uh, Raymond Calhoun and Oliver Scott, um, listening or watching Truth and Rhythm. I want to ask you guys, you know, Party Train, that song was so accessible and was a really big hit. And if you would have looked at any of the clubs or, or events that I was DJing at the time and the crowd that was reacting to it, you know, it went across, you know, all races and all, you know, demographics. They just ate it up. But yet it did not become a huge crossover hit. And the Gap Band throughout their career, they never had like that big pop hit, you know, like say even, even like Cameo eventually came up with Word Up and that really crossed over. What do you think it is about the Gap Bands, despite all those great songs, even like um, Early in the Morning became a hit later for Robert Palmer. Why did the Gap Band ever cross over in that way? And was it something that they cared about at all? Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, the, the music industry is, you know, unfortunately so trendy. And what's defined as pop is so divine, so so connected to other kinds of structures in this country uh, that, you know, a group could have songs that were worthy of that kind of widespread popular appeal that are tucked away in the album that maybe never was a single. Like the boys are back in town is just as much a pop song as anything you may hear on pop radio, uh, but was never released as a single. But if you put it side by side by other songs that are done in that style, it holds up very well. So I think it's connected to some other things. Some of it is just being with the right company, having the right marketing, having the right kind of personal persona as a band. But then I think some of the other structures that are institutionalized in this country, like racism, like uh, a black ownership of those media outlets that control what gets on the radio. I think some of that comes into play and that's not playing the race card as much as just acknowledging, you know, some of these institutions affect the success or lag thereof of a lot of stuff. And so I think some of that played into it. And then some songs are just so infectious that they break through all of that. You know, maybe Gap Band didn't have a song that was infectious enough to break through. I personally think, you know, Gap Band did, but uh, word up, you know, to me is one of those songs, like you said, that actually was able to break through that. And some songs are able to, to break through all those other kinds of barriers that are realistically in place. Some songs are just so infectious. They just like, I don't care about, I don't care about how, who owns it. Uh, people just get it and grab it. And I think even now with uh, the internet, that's probably more possible now. So, you know, it's, it, I think there are a lot of things contributed to it, but that, I mean, uh, foundationally, 
there's some institutionalized stuff that contributes to it as well. I think personally, and in my my opinion, from watching how the record business has been going from back to the early days and to where it is now, I mean, I just think Lonnie didn't have uh, enough pull at pop radio in terms of paying for the record, get to where it was supposed to be, mm-hmm. promotion, paying the right people to get that wreck party train to where it was at. Because I'm going to tell you right now, when we play party train on our oh show, my God. that's one of the biggest songs we play. That that song gets more of a party dance vibe out of white people mm-hmm. than any song in Mexican than any songs we... So, so, you, so definitely cross the color barrier, color barrier. Yeah. Yeah. The Mexicans and white folks love that song more than black people do. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and it's and it's a fun it's, song to play. I think it was a matter of him not putting the money in the right places because it had actually a good video as well. It just we, we had a video for that song as well. That's the one with Charlie with the little speed X at the beach and shit. There was yeah. pretty pro- cross culture and stuff, you know, with the video and all of that at Venice Beach and all that. It had all the elements. It just didn't have, I just don't think it had the right funding to get to where its pop status is supposed to be at. Because you know yourself, man, you know, you know, you know, back in those days, a lot of spots were bought because they were paid in terms of, you know, how high charts and how far they got to radio and all of that. So now that I think about it, I think it might have been that same year, Party All the Time was a huge crossover hit with Rick James and Eddie Murphy. This was a lot better party yeah. song and it yeah. the same love you know money <laughs> yeah yeah you got a machine behind eddie you got a machine behind rick that maybe you know motown and whoever eddie was with you know those, those are machines money machines behind those two guys that got man didn't have that we didn't mm-hmm. have Bonnie wasn't didn't have that he had money but he didn't have that kind of money. yeah yeah so. all right so let's continue on guys um gap band six you already talked about that some the lead single on that, the hit was Beeper Freak. And I got to tell you, that song, I think I think you had to get past that sound effect because when I first got it from the record pool, I was like, what are they doing with this? I said, is that beep go on through the whole record? You know, so I think you either uh, were able to get past that or you weren't. Personally, it kind of annoyed me a little bit. But what, <laughs> what do you remember about that album? And uh, what do you think about Beeper Freak? Let me respond to that. Go, <laughs> go ahead, please. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That there again was conceptually Rudy Taylor. I remember Rudy used to carry a beeper. And it'd be going off. Beep, 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 beep. And in the studio, Lonnie was sitting in the studio and Rudy was like, man, I got this concept. Beeper free. And that's Rudy's beeper going off in the record. And that's concept of Beeper Freaks. Every time I a little friend, Beeper Freak, and she was. That's all Rudy Taylor. Beeper Freak, yeah. completely Rudy Taylor and Lonnie. That was his concept. Nobody else contributed to that other than <clears throat> playing the, you know, the parts or whatever. But conceptually, that was Rudy Taylor and Lonnie Simmons, Beeper Freak. I think Charlie hated to fucking sing that song. <laughs> Cringe, but he was so strong out, he didn't give a fuck. He was like, you know what, this, you know. And believe it or not, though, buddy, I'm going to tell you something else. <clears throat> we went to Europe and performed. We went to Europe with that song on when that song was out. 
and perform that song. Do you know that they fucking love that song in Europe? Germany and France, they loved it, man. I was like, where the fuck? Where have I been? What, what planet am I from? They loved Beat for Freak in Europe. It was a huge uh, record in Europe. So Oliver, you weren't in the band then, but what would you think about that track and what they were doing at that time? Yeah, I thought it was kind of following. I think the band had kind of, as um, the band as an, a group, had been connected to the successes of, like Party Train had a sound effect at the beginning, Early in the Morning had a sound effect at the beginning, Burn Rubber had a sound effect at the beginning. I think Beeper Freak was, even though the concept may not have been born out of that, but having that beeper on it, I think that was just more of that kind of, okay, let's go with the gimmick that worked the last time, and this time it's Beeper Freak. And, you know, I think the band kind of at that point was just kind of reaching to reestablish his identity. And, again, you know, I got a song on that album that I didn't even know was on the album two years later, a song called Weak Spot. Again, with, as I said, I write producer. I was always going in the studio. Always yeah. recording something. Didn't know what Lonnie was going to end up doing with it. And so, I mean, that whole album, I was kind of out of touch with the band by then. And they were just pulling stuff out of the cans that I did just to have continuity, which was a sign that, you know, I, as a producer, I think Lonnie had kind of, he certainly had peaked because he didn't have any more, you know, he, you know he's pulling his straws now. That's what I think. Like you say, by then, Calhoun, I didn't know that, but. You know, maybe the guys were so strung out, you know. That's, yeah, but that was that was kind of that's my that's yeah. my take on Beaver Freak. I don't think I ever listened to the whole song from beginning to end, other than like you said, Scott. It kind of annoyed you. <laughs> it's annoying hearing that beeper. Like really, it's like really. It's like a, you know the smoke alarm in your house going off. <laughs> 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 